Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about a special investigation conducted by The Nation, how America's biggest bank paid its fine for the 2008 mortgage crisis with phony mortgages. Our David Dayan will report. Plus, another chapter of the Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, and Don Jr., Today, the story of how Ivanka and Don Jr. were almost indicted for fraud in 2012 over the failing Trump Soho project, while Jared had some unfortunate ideas about how to run his weekly newspaper, The New York Observer. Amy Willens has those stories. But first, a very special guest, Ai Weiwei, the most famous political artist in the world and a tireless human rights activist and critic of the Chinese government. Now he's made his first feature-length documentary film. It's about the global refugee crisis, and it's called Human Flow. For the documentary, Ai Weiwei traveled to 23 countries and dozens of refugee camps. The film opens in New York and Washington on October 13th, and in Los Angeles on October 20th, other cities after that. It's an honor and a pleasure to say Ai Weiwei, Welcome to the program. Thank you. In 2011, you were held in prison for 81 days, two guards standing a few feet away from you, 24 hours a day. When you were released, you made a piece about that for the Venice Biennale 2013 with astounding detailed dioramas of you in your cell. I remember them vividly. Um, You weren't allowed to travel for four years after that. Then in your new film, Human Flow, we see you on the beach on the island of Lesbos where boatloads of of desperate refugees are landing. You are wading into the water. you pulling refugees out of the ocean with one hand, shooting them on your iPhone video with the other. How did you get from that tiny cell in Beijing to the beach on the island of Lesbos? It remains as a question, you know, because you never can hear any explanation from the authority or from the other side. When I was in this detention till the last moment, last day, they still talking to me about I'm going to be sentenced over 10 years. Mm. And uh, suddenly in the evening, you know, evening I got released. And after many years of soft detention, they, they just hand back my passport say says you're now freely to travel then i i moved to berlin because uh, berlin this art university gave me a professorship there so i have to teach there and also i have a studio there i really want to get into working mode and uh, by that time i never thinking to to make a, a really a film but until I come to Lesbos on the shore, I, I, I see those uh, things ha- happened right in front of me. I said, okay, then I need a studio in here. So I moved my, my Beijing and the German studio. Um, my colleagues come to Lesbos, and we started to organize the, the whole shooting. When you were in prison, you were confined in this tiny space with two guards watching you every minute. Human flow seems sort of like the opposite. Millions of people on the move. You were not allowed to leave. They 
had to leave their home. Mm. You were watched every minute, but nobody is looking at them. So human flow maybe is sort of the opposite of your own experience, or, or maybe not. Um, but nature seems uh, opposite, but, uh, but by definition, it's quite close. People have been forced in state of uh, movement, which stillness is one condition of movement. Mm-hmm. So it's just the same. And you have said uh, in other places that you think of yourself as a refugee like those people coming ashore in Lesbos. Yes, uh, if I if I look at my history, when I was born, my father was exiled as a poet. We, uh, homely, uh, our family being sent to the most remote area in northwest of China, and that's that's already the border area. That means you can you've been sent as far as possible, mm-hmm. and uh, and the way I grew up in a condition of uh, humiliation and uh, discrimination. You know, my father, as enemy of the people and the party, has been badly, um, you know, criticized and uh, put in the hard labor. And I grew up in that kind of condition. So we are, we are internally uh, displaced and uh, and also being facing uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, discriminations. You have done one new thing. You've used the camera on drones to show literally the flow of thousands of of people. Drones, of course, also make the people look very, very tiny. What What do you think? What do you think about the drone? Yeah, drones is a fascinating. Offers a point of view which is not human's point of view. Yeah. It's uh, from either a bird or God. You know, a look at a human can be so indifferent you know it's mm-hmm. it can be almost nothing right on this uh surface of earth and uh you know it gathers and it, it also it moves and uh, it put the human flow as some part of the nature you know it's mm-hmm. like a water flow or yeah. ice melting so i like that that kind of metaphor you know because we are uh, very often talk about uh, the struggles of human and how different and how foreign those people are. But from a certain point of view, you cannot even distinguish who's who. It's all the same, you know. It's really, really uh, a problem of human itself. It's humanity. It's not uh, anything else. It's about human's uh, problem. So drones are very, very attractive, can offer this kind of possibility, but at the same time, you have to have a clear content to, to, to direct the drones how to do it. And, you know, you don't want to show any kind of just technical superiority, but, uh, you know, it's not a slickness of this kind of image, but rather to to interpret your your understanding of a uh, human condition. And, of course, we know drones has been broadly used in in the war and, yeah. uh, and which uh, already changes the aesthetics uh, of the war you know it's uh, it's it become questionable when you're killing people when they're you know they don't know who you are and they you know you don't know exactly who you're killing 
and uh, so blindly have this kind of superiority. Mm-hmm. And I think that is also very questionable. And, of course, human flow has the more familiar kind of one-on-one shots, portraits of individuals, conversations with individuals, and, and, and you, you are, are present on screen with people. In one camp, you get your hair cut. In another uh, camp, you cut someone else's hair. In one, you grill kebabs. In another, the woman you are setting up to interview gets so scared and upset that she throws up and you hold the bucket for her. This one really got to me. How did you decide how much of you should be in the film and how did you decide how you wanted to present yourself in the film? At the beginning, I have no intention to show myself at all. Only till the last moment of editing, I and the editor knows think this is very important to have a line of my involvement uh, for two reasons. One is we uh, offer this very large-scale um, interpretation of uh, human flow, but at the same time, uh, we, we're trying to see this is from one person's uh, journeys. I need uh, someone to introduce it in uh, this uh, this way. And also for another reason, many, many people would watch the film because of my involvement, you know, many, because I'm very lively working in the social media. Yeah. So people, I think it's good for young people to see how to get involved. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people will not say, oh, it's not possible, it's too large. Yes, it's very large, but still everything can come from one person's understanding or, or his own uh, feeling or his own you know, effort. And and what you do is very modest, but very directly engaging. Oh, yes, I, you know, this, um, for me, it's very natural to approach uh, with uh, those people who is unfortunate because I am part of them. You know, I understand them so well, speak the same language, and, uh, you know, there's no no boundary uh, between us. Mm -hmm. So I act very, you know, just normal. And uh, they also quite uh, appreciate my appearance. They, you know, they think this man is uh, it's just like one of them. I, I worried before I saw the film that the, all the suffering would be too hard to take, especially in a two-hour and 20-minute documentary. And there are some scenes that are almost unbearable. For me, it was that man at the freshly dug graves in this rough cemetery. He shows you the ID cards of his family members who they are burying, and there are five of them. I'm sure that lots of other terrible things happened in front of you, more terrible than that, but you have to decide where do you stop? What do you show? What do you turn your eyes away from? You want us to look, but maybe not at everything. Yeah, we 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 beginning we have to decide what kind of film we are making. So we decide we have to take a beautiful shot yes. as much as possible, yes. and a more still shot to yes. give people more space to gaze and to thinking about the situation. And we talk about humanity rather than shocking images. So we have to stop into those two sentimental or dramatic uh, uh, stories. You know, the, all the all those people have the same story. You know, they nobody, no one of them are choosing to leave their home and take this very dangerous journey. And the journey seems very dark and would have no end. So, 
we designed from beginning. That's how we tell our twenty or over team members to shoot in very different circumstances. Some in the war zone, some in the very restricted areas, and the very poor conditions. But as、uh, a result, we get、uh, over nine hundred hours of footage,、cool. which. Have a variety of type of stories, but we focused to using the stories which people can make their own judgment rather than we give out our own opinion. So now you are living in Berlin. Germany has taken in more refugees than any other European country. Germany just had elections where this far right nationalist party did very well, thirteen percent of the vote. The first time since Hitler that an openly nationalist party will enter the Bundestag. Maybe you heard the United States has a president who is anti-immigrant, who called Mexicans rapists, who wants to build a wall,、uh, who wants to ban all Muslim immigrants. So there's this huge backlash against refugees in the United States, in Germany, in Britain, other places in in Europe. It's big. It's scary. When you started this film, Trump didn't wasn't yet the president. What does the film mean now? While finishing、uh, the film, I went to the Mexico border. That's why I cut the hair. And when I take the air- airplane on the airport, I see the election accounting, the ticket on the、oh. airplane.、Oh. I wake up, I ask the uh, uh, flight attendant who win. She told me Trump.、Oh. So I was on the airplane and.、Uh, Everything happened、uh, quite dramatically, and you know, but still, it's a reality. You know, we have to face it. You know,、uh, and、uh, that's why it takes、um, another round of a fight. You know, and did we prepared to protect our human dignity, or to prepare to prepare to defend this everyone as created equal? And、uh, you know those fundamental values which made United States as strong nation and、uh, and made、uh, our society up、uh, uh, so much better than than decades ago. But、mm-hmm. liberty is never you can never really guarantee it. It takes generation to to defend their own you know、uh, rights. And、uh, here again, we have to do it, and、uh, yeah, that's why we make this film, and we want people to watch it, to make come out of their own judgment. In Human Flow, we see refugees crowded into boats. We see refugees marching through rain and mud, blinded by sandstorms. We see people trapped in camps. We see people who are frightened and suffering and miserable. But also, also what else? Also, the determination to to choose their own fate and、uh, the courage to to challenge their their dis- misfortune and and you know to start from zero again. You know, we this kind of story we hear for generations. People have to give up everything and to go to another location, and、uh, this is a moment to to. To really challenge what kind of humanity we have today, you know, and both、uh, in the very developed、um, democratic society, you know, how we look at those refugees—are they part of us or they're just some someone else?、Uh, do we willing to really 
to recognize we are part of the problem. Ai Weiwei's first feature film, the documentary Human Flow, opens in New York October 13th, Los Angeles October 20th, other cities after that. It's a portrait of 65 million people around the world who've been forced from their homes by famine, climate change, and war. Ai Weiwei, thank you for this film. Thank you for all your work, and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Now we want to talk about a special investigation conducted by The Nation, how America's biggest bank paid its fine for the 2008 mortgage crisis with phony mortgages. That's the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. It's reported by David Dayan. He's the author of the award-winning book Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. He writes for The Intercept, The American Prospect, Vice, and The Nation. David, welcome back, and congrats on uncovering this huge story. Oh, thank you very much. J.P. Morgan Chase is America's biggest bank. Let's start with them. How big are they? They uh, carry assets that are equal to about 13% of uh, the gross domestic product of the United States. Wow. So that's pretty big. <laughs> One in every eight assets in, in, in the U.S. economy. And what was their role in the 2008 financial crash? Well, uh, like all banks, they were involved in the origination and also the selling of mortgages on what they call the secondary market, where they uh, created bonds and packaged thousands of mortgages and sold them off to investors. It was kind of a game of hot potato because they knew these mortgages were bad and yet they gave them out to investors, and investors got left holding the bag uh, when it all uh, collapsed. And how does the Justice Department of the United States government punish the people who are responsible for misconduct, fraud, and deceptive practices like J.P. Morgan engaged in during the 2008 financial crisis? So the Justice Department negotiated not you know, a criminal lawsuit, but uh, they decided to do civil settlements with all of these banks. So nobody went to jail for any of this misconduct, but uh, the bank got to sort of pay their way out of jail and, and, and pay a fine. Uh, and that fine wasn't even cash. It was this thing called consumer relief. Uh, the majority of these settlements, uh, the, the, the headline uh, dollar figure was based on consumer relief. And that idea is that they would help homeowners by cutting the balances on their mortgages and they would take credit uh, under the settlement uh, to satisfy their penalty. Now, I went back and looked at the headlines at the time about this settlement. Attorney General Eric Holder announced that the fine for J.P. Morgan Chase and the four other mega banks who were held responsible for uh, this massive deception was $25 billion, a fine of $25 billion. That's B as in baby. That's that's a huge fine. We We must be very pleased and satisfied that our government would require such a massive penalty from the companies responsible for this bad conduct. Right. But as I said, only $5 billion of that was actually cash. 
and uh, the rest of it was in this form of consumer relief. And this story at The Nation, what we were able to uncover is that at least some of that consumer relief penalty, J.P. Morgan Chase paid for this by forgiving loans that they had sold off years earlier. And they, they forgave these loans they had no right to do and took credit under the settlement to relieve their burden with other people's money. So if they had not engaged in this deception, I would call it fraud, would this deal have been a good one for the taxpayers? If J.P. Morgan had done what it promised, would we have said justice was done, that it was a good idea to forgive the mortgages of tens of thousands of homeowners and the feds would rightly then credit those canceled loans against the penalties due under the settlements. Would that have been a good settlement if they had abided by it? Personally, I don't think so. First of all, I think if you want to create a deterrent to corporate crime, you have to hold some individual accountable. And in this case, cutting the balances of mortgages is what these banks should have been doing anyway. They, they were in a situation where a lot of these banks were, or a lot of these loans were going to go into foreclosure. And you do worse as a bank selling a house in foreclosure than if you modify the loan and try to keep somebody in the home. So it was in their financial interest to cut these balances. Uh, now they're just getting credit for a penalty for doing the thing that it was in their financial interest to already be doing. That's my problem with it. And how did you find the evidence of this massive scam? So a lot of it comes from this lawsuit from one of the investors who actually purchased the loans years earlier that J.P. Morgan Chase decided to forgive. His name is Larry Schneider. He's uh, down in Boca Raton, Florida. He uh, worked with J.P. Morgan Chase buying loans from them and then trying to work out uh, resolutions with the homeowners to keep them stabilized, keep the community stabilized, keep them in their homes. Uh, and he did this and it worked fairly well for a while. And then they gave him a batch of about 3,500 loans, which uh, were of, of terrible quality and, and didn't even have uh, identifying information attached to them like the property address or the uh, name of the, the owner of the property, the homeowner. Uh, and he struggled for years to try to figure out who these people were, what they owed, and, and, and whether he could make a deal with them. And he was, you know, there was kind of middling success with that. But then years later, many of his borrowers get these letters from J.P. Morgan Chase that say, as a result of our federal settlement with the U.S. government, we have canceled your loan. And these are people who had been paying Larry Schneider and his company oh, for three years. And then they get this letter from Chase saying their loan's forgiven. So this gets Schneider in tons of trouble. These homeowners are calling him very angry, saying they're going to sue him, saying they're never going to pay him a dime again, uh, that Chase forgave their loan. And, and what is this madness? Uh, this, this becomes a huge problem for Schneider, and, and it led him to sue J.P. Morgan Chase for this breach of contract and, and, and interference in his loans uh, by forgiving them. So that's where uh, this all comes from. And, and because this case has gone on for years, he was able to obtain through discovery uh, lots of internal documents 
internal uh, uh, machinations from J.P. Morgan Chase who were uh, putting together this activity. And I learned from your cover story in The Nation that it gets even worse after that. J.P. Morgan was still collecting payments on some of the mortgages it sold to other banks and other loan companies. That's right. So uh, J.P. Morgan Chase was still collecting on Schneider's loans. They were sending out letters either themselves or through these third-party debt collection agencies telling borrowers whose loans they had sold to pay up, (laughs) to pay J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, It was basically a way for them to, uh, you know, enact all these different revenue streams on the same loans. You know, you had, uh, they sold them off to Larry Schneider. They also were collecting payments. And then this third thing is they would cancel the loan and then take credit under the settlement to pay off their penalty. So it was a way to just uh, have multiple ways to profit off of the same toxic loan. So this guy, Larry Schneider, had a a business model, which I'd just like to talk about for us a minute. He would buy distressed mortgages, mostly from J.P. Morgan Chase, at a significant discount. Then he would offer the borrowers reduced mortgage payments. This seems like a, a great solution to the whole mortgage crisis. Could it have worked if, say, the government of the United States had supported this kind of thing? Not only could it have worked, it did work in the past, the recent past. In, during the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt used this very tactic, creating a company called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, buying up a million soon-to-be-foreclosed properties all over the country, working out terms with the borrower. Uh, 80% of those loans were saved. That's 800,000 loans, which was like one in six in the country at the time, and the Homeowners Loan Corporation made a small profit uh, after it was wound down within 20 years. This was the answer. This was the model. And the fact that the federal government didn't do it, we had to rely on people like Larry Schneider, who could only do it at a very small scale, is, is really part of the tragedy here. Because not only do we not get the kind of scale necessary that could have actually helped homeowners and the economy, but then you put small-time operators, relatively speaking, like Larry Schneider, into a situation where J.P. Morgan Chase can scam them. So we've been talking up to this point about the federal government and the Justice Department. Is this a story about Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions? Well, the, the part of the story that's about Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions is how nothing is going to come of this. But really, it's a story about Barack Obama and Eric Holder. These were the people in charge when J.P. Morgan Chase inked that settlement that they then uh, successively gamed. Uh, These were the people in charge when, you know, all of this misconduct did not yield any criminal penalties, but a civil settlement that was, uh, as it turns out, a con job. And these were the people in charge. When all of this went down, in fact, you know, there's a lawsuit right now. Larry Schneider is suing J.P. Morgan Chase, and J.P. Morgan Chase's law firm in that case is Covington and Burling, which is where Eric Holder works today. 
Oh. He is he is the he is a partner in Covington and oh, Burling. Man. They are a a, a white collar defense law firm. So uh, I really think that this story shows the the real disappointment of how we handled the financial crisis and its aftermath, and how law enforcement got nothing resembling justice out of that, and and it created this sense that we have this two tiered system of justice in America. And uh, that anger and frustration that the elites were were rigging the system, uh, at least in part, I think, led to Donald Trump. And what happened to the cities and towns where J.P. Morgan Chase claimed to have forgiven mortgages? Did that help them get back on their feet after the economic collapse of 2008? Quite the opposite. Where these loans were released in mass quantities, Suddenly, there was nobody available to handle maintenance, upkeep, or property taxes on these properties. Many of these properties had been abandoned. The loans had been defaulted for years. And J.P. Morgan Chase, by not executing the foreclosure and taking control of the property, instead sort of walks away from it. And the uh, responsibility for all that maintenance and upkeep goes back to those abandoned homeowners who left years earlier and have no intention of paying property taxes or mowing the lawn. So that all falls on these cities, and it falls on the U.S. tax uh, or the local taxpayers of that municipality uh, to deal with all of these vacant, crumbling properties that depress property values, uh, you know, make it harder for uh, the economy to come back. So this was a big problem for cities. And it was facilitated by this federal settlement that was supposed to help people. David Dayan, you can read about his special investigation at thenation.com. It's the cover story this week, and it's called How America's Biggest Bank Paid Its Fine for the 2008 Mortgage Crisis with Phony Mortgages. David, thanks for this fantastic report, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Now it's time for another episode of the Children's Hour. Stories about Don Jr., Jared, Ivanka, and little Eric with Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent of The New Yorker. She's best known for her award-winning books on Haiti, most recently Farewell Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, return with us now to the days before Ivanka and Jared ever dreamed they would have offices in the White House, that they would have titles as assistant to the president, that's Ivanka, and special advisor to the president, that's Jared. Return with us now to 2006. And let's start with Ivanka and her older brother, Don Jr. During the season finale that year of The Apprentice, Donald Trump Sr. unveiled a new Trump project. He called it Trump Soho. He said it was a luxury hotel and condo development in lower Manhattan. We now know this was the project where Ivanka and Don Jr. were going to become full players in the Trump empire. She was 24, he was 28. Last week, we learned a lot about Trump Soho, which was the focus of a major investigation by ProPublica. What is the story of Trump Soho? Well, 
as usual, it began in a tangle of lies from the Trump organization. So Trump Soho was not in Soho. For starters. For starters. In fact, it was at what um, they called in its, and still call in its uh, advertising online, where Soho meets Tribeca and the West Village. Well, you'll be interested to know, listeners, <laughs> that where Soho meets Tribeca and the West Village is the entrance to the Holland Tunnel <laughs> and the way to New Jersey. <laughs> I'm from New Jersey, so I think that's a great thing. But most people don't really want to buy their luxury suites at the entrance to a tunnel to New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. So it was already kind of questionably located. And then it became the focus, not just of an investigation recently by ProPublica, but an investigation, more importantly, by the Manhattan DA's office. And the Manhattan DA's office attention was called to this project because many of the buyers of the condo units felt that they had been fed a bunch of hooey by the Trump organization, uh, Ivanka and Donald Jr., in selling these units. Let me just interject here. This building is part luxury hotel and part condos. You can buy a condo in this luxury hotel. What was the condo that they were selling? Well, they were selling condos, but you could only live in your condo for 120 days per year because really you can't sell residential there according to New York zoning laws. So this was the Trump organization's way of getting around it. Please buy our condo, but you can only stay there part of the year. So your condo was essentially, if you got the very best one, and I've looked them over because, of course, I'm planning to move into a Trump building. Oh, no. And the very nicest ones, if you call them nice, uh, are the penthouse suites. And they're really hotel suites. And they have, at best, a kitchenette with a uh, wine cooler bar, a wine cooler breakfast bar. So you don't really have a full a full condominium. You have a hotel room passing for a residence. These were uh, hotel rooms you could buy. You were only allowed to live in it for 120 nights per year because the area wasn't zoned for residential. At least that means for the rest of the year, you would not have to look at the entrance to the Holland Tunnel. <laughs> right. And if you were lucky, your bathtub might have a view of the Empire State <laughs> Building. That's the kind of thing that uh, preoccupied the Trump organization so, in building this. So why was the Manhattan District Attorney's major economic crimes bureau interested in Trump Soho? Because the the Trump kids and the organization were trying to, they had to sell a certain percentage of their condo units available in order to make it an appealing place for people to buy other condo units. So they lied once about the percentage of units they had sold. Then they lied again about the number of units they sold. And then again, they said it was at 60% sold. In 2012, uh, Ivanka said that at a meeting that she gave for the foreign press. Mostly these are bought by foreigners. When she said that they were at 60%, they certainly weren't at 60% because as of today, they are just at 30% sold. And at that time, they were at? They were at something like 15% or even lower. So what exactly is the crime here? The crime is, it... is, uh, is fraudulent marketing, basically. And some of the buyers 
discovered that there weren't 60% sold, there were only 15% sold, that they were going to be living in a mostly empty condo. An echoing, vast (laughs) condo building. And they felt they had been deceived. And there were private lawsuits, which the major economic crimes bureau decided merited their, their own investigation. And yet, Ivanka and Don Jr., were never indicted for the crime of, yes. of fraud, for Because, the as buyers. usual with the Trumps, the story gets better. <laughs> so Ivanka and Donald Jr. assembled with Trump organization, backing a fabulous team of defense lawyers to counteract what they saw as this big, serious, scary investigation of themselves going on in the DA's office. But they weren't really getting any traction. The DA kept on looking at them and asking for papers and issuing subpoenas and all the stuff you do prior to thinking about indictments. And then one day in uh, 2012, Donald Trump Sr.'s personal lawyer, Mark Kasowitz, decided to pay a visit to Cyrus Vance, who is the Manhattan DA, the in charge of the whole DA's office. But a, a little bit before that, also in 2012, he gave $25,000 to Cyrus Vance's campaign for Manhattan DA. It's an elected office. And then he came in to talk to Cyrus Vance. Now, this is one big New York macher talking to another giant New York macher. And he came in. We don't know what was said. And then he left. And then uh, Cyrus Vance overruled his prosecutors and decided to drop the criminal case against Ivanka and uh, her brother Donald. By five years later, he had given, again, Mark Kasowitz $50,000 to another Cyrus Vance campaign. Vance did return the $25,000 the original 25, and now he's saying, oh, and I'll also return the 50,000. And when you say now, you mean in response to calls from ProPublica. <laughs> like yesterday. <laughs> yes. So he's had the use of the 50,000 all that time. And one more thing. What happened to the Trump Soho? Well, it's a sad story, John. The <laughs> Trump Soho went into foreclosure in uh, 2014 and was taken over by a creditor. Uh, Only 128 out of the 391 units available have been sold. That's about 33% now. Another story of a failure in the real estate business, which is the business of the Trump Organization. And uh, you and I have both discovered that the Trump Soho Hotel does have a glitzy website uh, (laughs) where they're still uh, open for business, and their slogan is, if success hasn't spoiled you, we will. So if success hasn't spoiled you, we will. What I love about this is that they don't really understand what the meaning of spoiled is. Spoiled means to ruin something, to make it rotten, to destroy it, and they understand from family experience, that success spoils people. But they are telling their foreign investors in their nice little hotel units that they will make sure they're rotten if they weren't already rotten. Well, that's uh, our story about uh, Ivanka and Don Jr. for today. We haven't talked about Jared yet. Uh, Jared was also in the news this past week. There was a big piece 
Also, revisiting Jared's work long before he ever imagined he would be a special assistant to the president, Jared was, of course, the publisher of the New York Observer, the weekly newspaper that he bought in 2006 for $10 million. He owned it for 10 years. He sold it only when he went to work at the White House. First, remind us, what was the New York Observer when Jared Kushner bought it in 2006? Well, the New York Observer was wildly popular, especially with the media elite in New York City. But it was kind of a fantastic takedown of the powers that be, uh, lots of gossip. Everybody worshipped this paper for its inside New York talk and understanding. It seemed to really hold the you know, uh, meretricious, ugly soul of New York in its hands and expose it all the time. Thoughtful and critical and funny and sharp and wry and uh, lots of things that I'm sure Jared Kushner didn't understand from the get-go. And he was only 28 years old when he bought the paper. And he had never been involved in journalism before. When but he was that never <laughs> stops a Trump from doing something new. <laughs> Last week, the former editor of The Observer finally spoke about what it was like to work for Jared. This was a piece for the Columbia Journalism Review, which many people don't read as carefully as you and, and sometimes I do. One of the most amazing things to me that The Observer's former editor said was, I'm quoting, most weeks, Kushner not only didn't read The Observer, he didn't appear to read anything else either. Were you surprised to find the publisher of a magazine, of a weekly, uh, not reading it? It's almost unbelievable because you might find the editor of a daily paper not reading the whole daily paper because the daily paper is gigantic. He has the next daily paper to put out. He can't read everything in his daily paper. If you're publishing a weekly and you don't know everything that's in there, you're not doing your job. But Jared Kushner never expected to do his job. He was used to being a kingpin at a real estate company where he didn't have to know every little working of everything. Um, but also, uh, this editor, whose name is Kyle Pope, said he never heard Jared Kushner talk about a book that even politics, I'm quoting, seemed to lie outside his area of interest. And he bragged that he never read the New York Times. Mm. And uh, he said every week, quoting now, uh, Kushner and I held a conference call with the Observer's editorial writer who would pitch ideas for the paper's two main editorial slots, ideas about state, local, and national politics. He says, quote, Kushner almost never showed any interest in what at the time were the hottest and most pressing issues of the day. It's pretty amazing for somebody who owns a newspaper. This is how I look at it. Actually, you know, he bought the newspaper. He wanted to own a newspaper. That's a thing you do when you want to be a big, important guy in a city. You buy a newspaper. It's happened to the LA Times. It's happened to many of the publications in New York City. So he has this newspaper, but he just doesn't give a damn about anything in a newspaper. He has no idea. He can't be bothered. He's arrogant. So what does it all mean when we look at First, the story of Trump Soho on the way Ivanka and Don Jr. avoided a criminal indictment for fraud, the way Jared Kushner ran the New York Observer for the 10 years he owned it. One thing that occurs to me, none of these people had the slightest interest in politics. Their only interest was their family business. And that's still the case. 
Um, you know, I know. So, so uh, Jared went to Harvard. I, I know that you know. First year, second year students at, at Harvard will tell you, you know, my goal in life is to be on the White House staff. My goal is to be in the work in the Senate. My goal is to be clerk a clerk for a circuit court clerk. judge. So, and their whole lives are oriented. They get their internships. They write their senior thesis. They get their parents to get them a job. If we look at Jared <laughs> and Ivanka and Don Jr., there's never any sign that they're Not interested that. in politics, in policy, in campaigning. But it, it's beyond that. John and 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 the president reflects this too. There's no uh, there's it's not that there's no interest in it. There's a total lack of curiosity about anything outside their world and now they're running the world. One last thing before uh we let you go. Uh Don Jr was in the news for one other thing. He gave a speech in Alabama where he touched on your work and my work as professors in liberal arts uh, schools. Yes, he decided to tell the good people of Alabama that college professors were responsible for teaching students, and I quote, how to become an actual fascist, unquote. (laughs) How did he discover our secret agenda? Well, I think he must have interviewed some of my students. (laughs) They're very good at giving the salute. (laughs) You've been listening to another episode of the Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka Don Jr. and Jared, reported by Amy Willens. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thanks so much, John. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the prospect of basketball players in the NBA protesting during the national anthem. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>